Now, children, you are invited to head on down to children's worship. And uh, I invite the rest of us to open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. It feels so good to say that once again. Uh, we've been away from our study in Mark for about a month, and uh, I've missed Mark, and it's good to be back in him again. Uh, we left off in chapter 8, so we're going to pick it up from verse 1. Uh, and just as a reminder to us, you know, so, some may ask the question, why do we do this? Why, why do we pick a book and just work our way through it verse by verse rather than sort of being all over the place all the time like we were this past month? Um, there's nothing wrong with topical preaching, of course. If you're preaching the Bible, you're preaching the Bible. Um, but what, what we understand is that all God's word is profitable for us. And lest um, we as pastors or any one of us in leadership of the church uh, decide that um, we're just going to preach our favorite texts or preach the truths that we think are uh, most important, uh, we want to just pick a book of the Bible and let God set the agenda for us, pulling out everything that is good in the scripture. So we find ourselves in Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read uh, the first 21 verses of this chapter as we cover them this morning. Let me read for us starting in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. 
And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is God's word. God, as we look at these verses together, give us understanding. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's just not clicking. That is what I found myself saying all throughout my years of studying math in school. It's just not clicking. For whatever reason, words have always come very, uh, very easy to me. I've been a words and grammar guy all my life, but numbers are a completely different story. It's almost like a learning deficiency. I have a, I have a huge problem with numbers and math. I remember in sixth grade, my, my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Brown, said to me in his deep voice, and he always referred to himself in the third person. I'm not really sure why, but he came up to me one day in sixth grade and said, now, Mr. Swift, if you would pay, more atten- pay as much attention to Mr. Brown's math class as you do your golf swing, well, we all would be happier individuals. Now, I agree with you, Mr. Brown. I'm doing my best. In fact, I, 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 no joke, I failed every single math class that I took in middle school and high school. The only reason that I passed, I think, is because my teachers just wanted to get rid of me. So they showed me some grace, raised my grade. And when I got in my freshman year in college, they put me in the remedial math class. I will never forget the name of the textbook. Algebra and arithmetic, dot, 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 again. Thank you for that support, really raising my self-esteem there. <laughs> Math just never clicked. It has always gone over my head, and I think a big reason of that is just apathy. I really didn't care whether it clicked, whether I made sense of it. All of us have those things in our lives that all our lives long, it just doesn't click. It goes over our heads, and we're happy that it goes over our heads. We're not, we're not bothered by it. But there are some things in life that we must be absolutely sure click for us. Things in our life that we must absolutely be sure do not go over our heads. And this text in Mark this morning challenges, uh, challenges us to ensure that when it comes to the identity of Jesus and his truth, that it clicks. That the identity and truth of Jesus does not go over our heads. We see this morning, to our surprise, that the Pharisees and even Jesus' own disciples had the truth of Jesus going right over their heads. And the reason was that they were in unbelief. Jesus cautions them and therefore cautions us this morning against unbelief. Now, as I said, it's been about a month since we've been in Mark, and uh, we may be confused when we look at verse 1. If you take a look at verse 1 of Mark 8, it says, in those days. Well, we may forget what days we're talking about because it's been a while. If we would go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 31, we would be reminded that Jesus is in the Decapolis. He has been uh, doing ministry among a Gentile people in a Gentile area. Jesus uh, has been ministering to the Jews, and he has also been ministering to the Gentiles. And surprisingly, we find in Mark chapter uh, 8, verse 1, that a great crowd, presumably a great crowd of Gentiles, has begun following him. All the Old Testament prophecies we see are beginning to come true. 
that God said when the Messiah would come, not just his people Israel would seek him, but that the nations would begin turning their eyes to the living God. And Jesus has the Gentiles turning their eyes to God and beginning to follow him. And Jesus, we find, is not just tolerating these Gentiles, but his heart is actually extending out to them in his grace and his mercy. Really, the first thing that we can see from this text is that Jesus shows compassion to unlikely folks. Jesus shows compassion to unlikely folks. As he looks at this great crowd of Gentiles following him, what does he say to his disciples in verse 2 and 3? He turns to his disciples and he says to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. These Gentiles are so devoted in following him, they've been following him three days, and they, don't, they, they didn't pack a lunch. And if they did pack a lunch, it's run out, and Jesus sees it happening, and he sees a problem, and he sees they've got a rough terrain headed back home, and he wants to feed them. He says that he has compassion. It's that word that we've been looking at in Mark that he uses a lot for the, the, the feeling that Jesus has for sinners and sufferers, that Greek word, splagnizomai. That deep, utter, gut-wrenching feeling of mercy and grace and love for sinners and sufferers. And he shows this to a crowd that a typical Jewish rabbi would be pretty indifferent towards, a Gentile crowd. Well, in verse 4, the disciples say to him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. The disciples, it's just not clicking. It's going right over their heads because apparently they have already forgotten what happened back in chapter six. Back when Jesus had a crowd of 5,000 people with just a, a, a little bit of resources and in that occasion, he showed his miraculous power of being able to abundantly provide for that crowd. And here, it's apparently gone right over the disciples' head. They have completely forgotten about Jesus' miraculous ability. And so in verse 5, he asks them the same thing that he asked his disciples back in chapter 6. He looks at them and he says to them in verse 5, how many loaves do you have? I would love to know how he asked that to the disciples. And was it sort of sarcastic? Well, guys, how many loaves do you have? Or was it with a wink? You know, well, guys, how many loaves do you have? Here we go again. I'm going to do this miracle again. Now, there are many similarities between this miraculous feeding here and the one that we read of in chapter 6. I'll leave it to you to, uh, to look at those similarities. But there are two important dissimilarities between this feeding here in chapter 8 and the feeding that took place back in chapter 6. And the first important dissimilarity is that on this occasion, there is less people and more resources. If you remember back in chapter 6, the crowd was 5,000 people. Here, there's only 4,000 people. Back in chapter 6, they had five loaves and two fish. Here, they have seven loaves and a few fish. Inference being, 
if Jesus could handle feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish, surely he could handle feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. Yet still, the logic of faith just is not computing for the disciples. It's going over their heads. It's just not clicking. But the second important dissimilarity between this feeding and the one in chapter 6 is that the one that happened in chapter 6 was a predominantly Jewish crowd. And here, presumably, it is a predominantly Gentile crowd. And Jesus is being very intentional here to repeat this miracle before his disciples' eyes so that it gets into their minds and into their hearts that God's heart is just as much for the Gentiles as it is for the Jews. And he is not stingy at all in feeding this people, is he? Because there's, there's a lot of doggy bags left over uh, afterwards. There's a lot of leftovers. And, and what he's showing is, just like I fed the Jewish people and there was an overabundance, I am going to feed this Gentile crowd with just as much overabundance, just as much blessing. It's not a situation where uh, we really like the Jewish people and, and so we're, we're really going to uh, give them some. But when it comes to the Gentiles, well, we'll just make sure everyone has enough uh, for a little snack. And uh, if there's no leftovers, no big deal. Now, if you remember back in chapter 6... Whose idea was it to feed the crowd? Back in chapter 6, the disciples came to Jesus and looked at the crowd and said, Jesus, I think we ought to feed these folks. But here in chapter 8, whose idea is it to feed? Jesus comes to his disciples and says, guys, I have compassion on this crowd, and I think we ought to feed them. Could it be that the disciples actually were kind of indifferent to this Gentile crowd? Could it be that it never actually occurred to them at all that they should show hospitality, they should show compassion to this crowd of Gentiles? I wonder, when we see people whose sins are just a little bit more obvious than our own, are we tempted to withdraw or do we hear the voice of Jesus saying, I have compassion on those folks? Out of a sense of self-righteousness, do we distance ourselves? I think of the refugee families who've been pouring into Lancaster County more and more uh, every year. And many of them Islamic. And they don't hold to the same faith, hold to very different backgrounds. Or we drive by homeless people in Lancaster City who are drug addicts and alcoholics, or perhaps your LGBTQ friend, neighbor, coworker. do we hear Jesus saying, I have compassion? Not that we agree with their sin, of course not. We have to draw the lines where the scripture draws the lines. But do we do so in a way that represents the compassion of Jesus? Or like to the, the disciples, do we, do we forget? Do we distance ourselves? Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourselves outside of Christianity at this point in your life and you think to yourself, well, Jesus, I think, is interested in the good people. He's interested in those who have their act together, people who haven't made embarrassing mistakes uh, in their life like I have. 
But no, Jesus looks on the sinners and sufferers. He looks on the, the unbelievers who are following him earnestly, seeking him earnestly, and he says, I have compassion. I want to feed you. Is your heart starving? I want to fill you with my Holy Spirit. I want to satisfy you with my grace and my mercy. Friends, Jesus shows compassion to unlikely folks. We should remember that when we are tempted to distance ourselves in self-righteousness. Well, speaking of the self-righteous, Jesus leaves that crowd, and uh, in verse 10, we see that he gets into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha, and who is waiting for him when he gets there? Uh, Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, argue with him. Uh, Isn't it ironic? The Gentiles are the ones who are following Jesus, but the Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to be closest to God, are fighting with Jesus. And I think the irony is, uh, is, is very intentional here as Mark is writing. And what are the Pharisees doing? Why are they arguing with him? In verse 11, it says, they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, to test him. Now, incidentally, that word for test is the same word that Mark uses back in chapter 1 to refer to Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. If you remember on that occasion, Jesus went out into the wilderness to uh, be tempted by Satan, and Satan said, if you're the son of God, then do do these signs. Make these miracles happen to really prove that you are the son of God. And now here we are, the Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to be in closest fellowship with God, are acting just like Satan, testing him for a sign. Their patience with Jesus has run out. They're sick of his teaching, which they consider to be heresy. They're sick of what they think is blaspheming as he calls himself God. And they're very sick of all the crowds that he has been gathering around him, especially folks like the Gentiles. If you remember back in chapter 3, they're in league with Herod and his men at this point to find a way to get rid of Jesus, to have him killed so they don't have to deal with him anymore. Well, how does Jesus respond? The second thing we see is that Jesus rebukes unbelief and warns against its influence. He rebukes unbelief and warns against his, its influence. Take a look at verse 12. Jesus says to these Pharisees, he, he, it says he sighed deeply in his spirit. That word sighed deeply, it's just one word in the original language, the only time that it's used in the entire New Testament. And it conjures up the sense of someone whose patience meter is nearly empty. Someone whose patience is being tested to the limit and they're just about to lose it. Isn't it funny? The Pharisees are running out of patience with Jesus. But Jesus is running out of patience with the Pharisees. And Jesus being the most patient person in the entire universe, when his patience runs out, watch out. What does he say to them? Verse 12, why does this generation seek a sign? Implication, my whole life has been a sign that I am indeed who I say I am that I am God, that I am the Son, 
that I am Lord, that I am Savior? Was I not born of a virgin? Was I not born in Bethlehem in the Davidic line? Ha, are the lame not leaping? Are the deaf not hearing? Are the blind not seeing? Are the, are, the, are, are, are the mute not speaking? Have I not been proclaiming good news? Have I not been showing up to this point that I am the sinless one? My whole life has been a sign. What other sign do you need? And then he says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, our translators here are actually interpreting this verse on top of translating it, because the Greek really, it's more like Jesus is saying, if a sign is given to this generation, sort of like, well, we'll use an analogy of mothers because it's Mother's Day. Uh, sort of like when you were little, or let me put it on myself, when I was little, and mom told me, hey, you better clean your room, and I didn't do it, and, and later on she said, if you don't clean your room, she didn't need to finish the sentence. I knew what she meant. Jesus is saying, if this generation is given a sign, so help me. The Pharisees had all the signs right before their eyes of who Jesus was. And yet they remained hardened in their unbelief. Friends, woe to us who have even more of the full revelation of who Jesus is, more than the Pharisees ever had. And we look at the revelation of Jesus and we remain unconvinced. What is the danger? In verse 13, in verse 13, what did he do? And he left them. I'm out. So long. I've had enough. Friends, Jesus will still do this today to individuals and to churches. Individuals and churches who, who read the revelation of God, the truth of Christ, and they say, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not fully convinced anymore. I'm not, I'm not really sure that about this exclusivity of Jesus and salvation only being in and through him. I, I think maybe other walks of life, other faiths, maybe God will, will lump in. Yeah, I'm not convinced anymore that that." that what God says about marriage and sexuality is, is really the case. I, I think maybe somehow God's hands were tied and somehow um, w without him knowing, error slipped into his word and, and somehow man uh, brought to bear just their cultural understanding and oh poor God, uh, error slipped into his word somehow. Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit and the danger is that he will walk away. What did he say in Revelation? When he warns the churches, he says, if you don't turn and repent, I'll take your lamp away. I'll snuff you out. You can have your following. You can build your platform. You can have your denomination. You can do your thing. But I won't be with you. My glory will depart. I will not bless you with my presence. See, Romans 2 tells us, doesn't it, that his patience is meant to lead us to repentance, not to presumption. And lest we think that unbelief is something for others out there and couldn't come into our hearts, Jesus uh, warns his own disciples about unbelief 
uh, and the danger of it in their own hearts. Take a look at verse 14. In verse 14, he leaves them, goes into the boat, and uh, they had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them. But Jesus is still worked up about his interaction here with the Pharisees, and he cautions the disciples in verse 15. The, one of the only times it says that he cautioned them about anything, and here was his caution in verse 15. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, leaven, he's using here in a, a, a sort of an, a, a, what's the word, a metaphorical way. Uh, leaven is a small substance, isn't it? But it has a huge influence once you put it in that dough. It's, it starts to, to really make the dough expand. And he's talking here about the influence of the Pharisees, that is a, a dead, cold religion and, and, and just formal kind of religiosity. And on the other hand, the leaven of Herod, the influence of the world and their schemes and their philosophies. And what he is saying is you better watch out for these influences. I love what J.C. Ryle says in his commentary. Uh, he wrote and said, Jesus calls their influence leaven. No word more suitable could have been employed. It exactly describes the small beginnings of false doctrine, the subtle, quiet way in which it insensibly pervades a man's religion, the deadly power with which it changes the whole character of his Christianity. Here, in fact, lies the great danger of false doctrine. If it approached us under its true colors, it would do little harm. The great secret of its success is its subtlety and likeness to the truth. And then he closes with this, such a good word. Every error in religion has been said to be a truth abused. Every error in religion has been said to be a truth abused. How does unbelief come creeping its way into our hearts as individual Christians? How does it come creeping into whole churches? Jesus says two ways. The influence of the Pharisees, where the doctrinal statement looks great on paper, but yet it doesn't come and make any difference on the heart. We're just going through the motions. There's no true heart connection. There's no vibrancy. There's no fire with our relationship to the Lord. And the other way unbelief creeps in, he says, is the leaven of Herod, the influence of the world, where we slowly begin to release our grip on the scripture one finger at a time as the world and its philosophies and its, its, uh, its mindset comes creeping in. Each one of us could fall into that. That's why Jesus says, beware. And Hebrews says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. It's a big warning, isn't it? Yet, how did the disciples react to this warning? Now take a look at verse 16. Jesus has just given them something very serious to ponder verse 16, and they began dis discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> I love this. You can picture it. They're on the boat, and one bright spark among them is like, you know, speaking of leaven, that kind of reminds me of bread. And, uh, you know, I, I realize we've only got one loaf 
Uh, who forgot to pick up the leftovers at the feeding here that we just had? Um, Thomas, were you supposed to do it? Thomas says, no, Peter was supposed to do it. And then they're fighting with one another. And then their stomachs start growling. And now all they can think about is the fact that they don't have bread in the boat after Jesus has just given them this very serious warning. And what is going over their heads? What's not clicking? Didn't he just prove, not once, but now for the second time, that if they lack enough bread to go around, that he can handle it, that he can feed them? But they are distracted. What we see next, and lastly, is that Jesus patiently teaches confused disciples to understand and trust him. Unbelief has crept into the disciples' hearts here, and they can't even see it. They don't even recognize it. Uh, They're worried about lesser things than the straightforward, very serious thing that they should be worried about that Jesus just told them. And what does Jesus do? Uh, In verse 17, it says, Jesus, aware of this. You realize that Jesus is more aware of what's going on in your heart than you are of what's going on in your heart. He knows when unbelief has sunken in and you don't even realize it. He knows when you rise up, when you lie down. He, he knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you say them. He knows everything. He's aware of when we're missing the point. He's aware when we're distracted. He's aware when all things are happening. And in his patience, he asks them some questions to help teach them, to help clarify, hey guys, you're missing the point. Take a look at the questions he asked them, starting in verse 17. I'll give you the Adam Swift translation of verses 17 through 18. He says, uh, guys, um, you're missing the point. Uh, You you guys need to go back to school? Are you not getting this? Do you guys have a a heart problem? Do do you need glasses? Do do you need hearing aids? Do you have short-term memory loss? What's going on? And he clarifies for them, he's teaching them here in verse 19, he does a little math with them, which hopefully they're better at math than I was. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12, okay, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Is it clicking or is it still going over your heads? Trust me. Trust me. Look to me. Their disconnect in their faith was actually a disconnect in their understanding. They weren't able to put the pieces together of what they were seeing unfold right in front of them as Jesus was acting, as he was teaching. They saw it all, and yet they couldn't actually grasp what their eyes were seeing. They couldn't apply it to their hearts, and therefore they were being preoccupied with lesser things, and they were actually walking in unbelief. They were living as practical atheists. And don't we do the same? Oh, goodness. How many times has Jesus proved his ability to provide for us in the past 
How many times has he revealed the truth and, and reliability of who he is for us in the scripture, through our own lives, through the testimonies of others, and yet we miss the point and we start worrying about lesser things. And he comes to us and he says, guys, why are you worried about that? Have I not proven myself? Can you not trust me? I will always be faithful. I will always be faithful. So what is the key to us not missing the point as the disciples did? How can we be sure that we are getting into our hearts and minds what he is giving us that we might walk in faith with him and not miss the point? I think the key is uh, couched in the questions that he asks. First, he asks in verse 17 and 18, do you not yet understand? The first key is that we actually have to understand Christ's truth. It's so true, isn't it? We could sit in church for years and, and have the Bible taught to us. We can read our own Bibles day in and day out and yet never actually understand the things that are being unfolded for us in the scriptures. It could just become a routine thing where we're reading just to check the box or we're sitting in the pew just because church is what we do. But we have to get to the point where we are actually understanding the Bible and not just understanding it in the mind, but understanding it deep in our hearts, that it begins to churn our affections. Then secondly, he asked, do you not remember? We have to go from understanding to remembering Christ's truth. Uh, if you ask me, did you learn math in school? Yeah. Do you remember it? No, no. How many of us, unfortunately, if we're honest, have you learned Christ? Have you learned the Bible? Yes. Can you remember it? Can you call it up in your heart? Can you bring it to bear on every situation? That it's hidden here, not just up here floating around, but it's hidden deep in here. And only then can we actually live Christ's truth so that it's not going over our heads, but we can bring it to bear on every situation of our lives. The disciples were with Jesus for three whole years. They heard everything, they saw everything, and still they needed understanding. They needed their hearts to be softened. They needed to learn to apply. In other words, they needed to grow up in their faith. And Jesus was patient in teaching them to grow up. And he will be patient with you. He will be patient with me as we seek to grow up with him as well. But as he's being patient, let's not test the limits of his patience by remaining hardened in unbelief, but continuing to grow and grow and grow and mature. First Peter puts it this way, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. As we close this morning, we, we have to realize all of us are on different paths, aren't we? Uh, some, of us, some of us have just begun our journey with Jesus. And what we need to do is we need to begin to understand the basics, the fundamentals of the Bible. We need to understand it so that we can remember it, so that we can live it. But it's the same story for those of us who are farther along in our journey as well. Because we have the same sort of short-term memory loss and the same sort of unbelief creeping into our hearts every day that the disciples had. And for us, the story is the same, that where we are, we continue to grow in our understanding. We're never 
done learning when it comes to Jesus. We're never done remembering. We're never done with our journey of longing for the pure spiritual milk that we might grow up into salvation. Some of us are down here. Some of us are up here. For all of us, we pray, oh, for grace to trust him more. Jesus comes to us and he says, is it clicking? Is it going over your heads? Do you still not understand? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have uh, Bibles that we can look to, that we might truly come to a heart understanding of who Jesus is, and that we might live in light of that truth. Forgive us for the times, even this week, where we've acted like the disciples, where unbelief has creeped into our hearts through the influence of the world or just through a, a dead, going through the motion kind of empty religion. Would you kindle a flame in our hearts that we might truly trust you? We're all prone to wonder. We feel it. So we give you our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that we would look and see your patient leading, your patient teaching every day as you come to us and you remind us of who you are and the truth that you have given us. We pray that we would walk in light of the truth, that we would always come back knowing that your power is sufficient for our every moment, our every need. And we're thankful for your compassion, for your patience, for your grace. And we need you every moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand together and sing?